0: Good morning. My name's Gav. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to have you here. We will begin our sort of our next habit we're looking at in this series, which Jez said is the church. I love speaking on the church. Um, so get ready for that. Um, so I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. God, we want to thank you so much for the church, for your idea of the church. Uh, it is, is from you and it is a blessing to all people. Lord, I pray that you use me this morning as your servant that I would speak uh, what is truth and be faithful to uh, what you have revealed. Lord, just help us right now to be able to listen to this well. Uh, help us to put distractions aside or worries aside and just sit at your feet and listen, listen to our humble King who loves us and has a word for us this morning. So Lord, we want to pray that you bless our time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder if you remember back to your, uh, remember to your high school days, when, when that time in, in you know, that high school career where uh, relationships and dating became a big thing, you know, for me it was around year eight, year nine, everyone started getting boyfriends and girlfriends. And I wonder if you went back to your first dating experience. I remember mine and uh, I remember um, sitting somewhere and these, these girls come up to me and said, hey, my friend likes you. And that's how it began. And then parties were organized just so we could spend time together. She had some powerful friends. And... Um, It eventually worked and we started dating. And as usual, uh, with every dating relationship, it went from zero to 100 within seconds, right? You know, uh, every waking moment on the phone talking to each other, sitting next to each other in class, spending lunch times together, just gazing into each other's eyes, um, seeing just no one else but her. And that was great at the start. We were both into it, but over time, my interest started to wane. I started to get less committed to it. I wanted to see my friends, I wanted to sit next to other people. I wanted to play sport at lunchtime, not just looking into her eyes. I found that a bit boring. And really, what happened, was well, the commitment sort of started to, to wane. Interest has gone, newness had worn off. I was in a relationship, but I wasn't really that committed to it. Happy to hang out now and again, but let's not be so serious, That's what I was thinking. And I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that before with a relationship, one where it starts out great, where interest is there, but commitment dies off. And you feel like uh, uh, you don't really want to commit that much to the relationship anymore. And rather, you keep your options open and keep everything else at arm's distance. As Jess said, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at stewardship. And for the next three weeks, we're looking at this next habit, which is church and church community. And what we're saying here in this series is, if you want to grow and, and, and thrive as a follower of Jesus, then gathering as God's people is essential. It is critical. In the next three weeks, we want to show you why, what the church is, its purpose, and its mission. And when I think about church, I think often sometimes the worry is we can treat the church like we treat high school relationships. We date the church. Our relationship with the church starts out great. We're excited. It's new people. Music's great. Enjoy the preaching, all that sort of stuff. But as it goes on, we can feel like church can become a bit needy, a bit too intense at times. And we don't like to be tied down to it. We can feel like it asks too much of us every Sunday and a weeknight. And you want me to give some money too, and serve? We feel like we want to try and keep this at an arm's length. I don't get too committed. Hey, Ben. (laughs) Thanks. I wonder what your relationship like is with the church. Do you understand what God's purpose is for? Do you understand what the church is? And do you love it and treat it like Jesus treats it? And how important is it to you and what priority, if you were to prioritize, where does church sit for you in your order of priorities, in your life? Something you get to when you have time? Or is it a thing you look forward to and it's a a vital part of your week? My my big hope and prayer for this, this series is to help you to fall in love with the church of God again. God's family, God's people. And I know there are people here who probably had bad experiences of church, being hurt by the church, which is so sad. And I'm sorry for that. Some of us have have become probably apathetic towards church and lost our love and our passion for it. But I want to take you back, back to God's original design and purpose for it. And I want to show you the beauty of God's design for the church, which is His plans and His purposes. The writer and author who I love, Paul Tripp, he says this in second at the church. He says, Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than a beautiful garden, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you're a part of something immense that began before you were born and continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity and transporting them into his kingdom and progressively shaping them into his likeness, and he wants you to be part of that. I want to say, let's work hard in this series to lift our eyes up to see God's purposes for us and the church of God and then... Enjoy and delight in being a part of that plan. I want to walk you through sort of three observations as we tackle this idea of church and what this is. And they are God's definition of the church, God's love of the church, and God's purpose of the church. So his definition, he defines it, his love, how he feels about it, and then his purpose, what it's about. So I want to go back to the beginning and define church for you. And we're going to sit in a text, uh, Ephesians 2, that just read for us. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, whatever you have, I can get this open, because this is probably the key passage on the doctrine of church in the Bible. If you're not know churched about, you come here and look at what Paul has to say to the, to the Gentile church here. Let's so have a look. In sentences 11 and 12, which are on the screen behind me, Paul kicks this off, and he's writing to a bunch of people who are called Gentile Christians. So that is people who follow Jesus but aren't Jewish, they're not, uh, they're not, not from Israel. And so uh, there, there's these people um, aren't God's chosen people. And so in, in the Bible, there's sort of two categories, Jew, Gentile. You have the Jews who are the chosen people of God, the Gentiles who are everyone else, non-Jews basically. And there's a, 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 a big amount of hate and, 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 and anger towards uh, one another, these Jews and Gentiles. They were, they were warring against one another. Uh, the Jewish people looked down on the Gentiles as though they were not the people of God, and the Gentiles felt that and wanted nothing to do with the Jewish people. And so there was, there was, there was this lot of anger and, and hatred towards each other, hostility. But that was never God's feeling. He had never had that feeling towards the Gentile people. God sent Jesus for all people, Jew, Gentile, for anyone. The gospel is Jesus died for all people, bearing, the sin, bearing all our sin on the cross to bring us to God. And in Ephesians 11 and 12, what Paul is doing is, he's reminding the Gentile people of who they were, of what they were like, what they once all were. And when he says the word here, you, he's meaning plural, it's yous, or for my American friends, y'all, right? And so he says here, y'all were at, at at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. They were separated from God. That's who they were, these Gentile Christians. So Paul's reminding them of this. So I'm not part of. Uh, there was no relationship with God or with God's people. But then, verse 13, he goes on. He tells us that through Christ, that's Jesus' death on the cross, that you Gentiles, non-Jewish people, which includes us here, have been brought near to God. We are reconciled to God. That is the gospel. Through Christ, we are reconciled to God. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Keep looking at this. He says, he says, being a follower of Jesus doesn't only affect your relationship with God, it reflects your relationship with others to the church. This passage says, or basically says here, that you've been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. As I said before, there, when Jesus came to die, there were two distinct groups of people. There were, there were Jews with their regulations and their laws, and there were Gentiles and non-Jews, everyone else. But after Jesus died on the cross, things changed. It wasn't like that God just added the Gentiles into the Jewish, Jewish religion. No, what was formed was the church. The church of God was formed. It was now God's people through Christ reconciled to one another. The church was born. It's those who follow Jesus. And both Jew and Gentile were reconciled to one another. There's now one being, one body. Look how Paul puts it in sentences 14 to 16. Follow along. Look at this on the screen on your Bibles. It says, For he, Jesus, for he himself is our peace. And he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of, of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. Paul's saying one new person, one new being, one new group, one new people, a new humanity. That new humanity is the church of God. That's who it is, all through Christ. Christ has bought and purchased for himself a people by his blood, and that is the church, the people of God. That's what Paul is saying here. In 1961, the Berlin Wall was established and erected and was built to divide East and West Germany, this country. Divided the country in half, and there was great hostility between East Germany and West Germany, and so much so, there were guards placed in the wall to make sure that no one could come over that wall. During this period, it was estimated that around 5,000 people attempted to escape over the wall, which resulted in hundreds of deaths. But on November 9 in, uh, in 1989, the East German government announced its citizens could go and visit West Germany. And crowds of East Germans crossed and climbed over the wall and joined the West Germans on the other side in this great sort of uh, uh, party atmosphere. And over the next few weeks and years, citizens on both sides began to chip away at the wall to break down this wall. You see a picture here of this happening. Then October 3rd, 1990, it was finally done. The wall was demolished and Germany could be reunited. Germany again was again won. Not two, but one. This wall of hostility was broken. So we read the Bible, this idea in the Old Testament, there was hostility with Jew and Gentile towards one another. But just like, in, but, but like with Germany, in sentence 15, we read out now read, there is peace, there is one. We are one Jew-Gentile together, the church of God, all reconciled through the blood of Christ, the church. Have a look at sentence 19. Paul puts it this way, he says, So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Gentiles are now fellow citizens. They never would have dreamed this idea of being God's people, but they are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. They are all one, all part of God's family. And Jesus is the head of the family, God is the father, and now every other follower of Jesus is brother and sister. That's who they are. No matter what background, no matter what race, no matter what culture, this is the church of God, united, one, under the blood of Christ. Jesus redeemed for himself a people, and that people is the church of God. So today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a part of the church. You're a part of the church. You're a part of God's family. Every person here who's a follower of Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is who we are. You can't say that I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not part of the church. You can't do that. That's not how it works. You are saved into the church. You are saved into the family of God. That's who you are. That's who we are. We are united by Christ. It's not just me and Jesus alone. It's not just, it's just us hanging out. It is we together as the people of God, united by Christ. That's who we are. It's not optional. When God saves you, saves you into his family. That is his good plan for us we get a big family, brothers and sisters in Christ. If to say, I don't need the church, it's just me and Jesus, it'd be almost like um, someone coming to me and give me a brand new pair of ice skates. I don't skate, but hey, I'll take them, right? I love new things. So to say someone came to me and said, I've got a brand new pair of ice skates for you. I'm like, great, I'll give them a shot. So I put my ice skates on, I go to the ice rink by myself and do a few laps, follow it a few times, but I'm enjoying my new skates. They look great, I'm enjoying it. And I'm so excited, you know, I use them, and I go round and round for a while, and then uh, over time, I get a bit bored with it, okay, I'm a bit over ice skating, but, uh, you know, nice gift. And I, then I, you know, say so I see the friend who gave me the ice skates, and I say to them, thanks for the ice skates, I really appreciate it. And they look at me and go, what are you doing? And I say, I'm just using the ice skate with myself. He says, no, no, I gave you those skates, you got me part of the ice hockey team to join a team with them. That's the purpose of these skates, is to go and join a team, be part of a bigger purpose outside of yourself. That's the same thing with the church. We're not just saved for us and God. We are saved as a bigger purpose, a bigger plan, to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And I think this is really hard for us to get our heads around because we do live in such an individualistic society where most of my life, of our life, is about me and what I want. And so it can infiltrate in our Christian life where we think it's just about me and God. And, you know, I hear people say, and I fuck I, I, like, out my own mouth, people say, you know, um, it doesn't really matter if I miss church, I'll just catch a sermon online, I'll just go and worship by myself, my music, it's okay, I miss out. But the premise behind this thinking is, primarily it's me and God. Whereas that's not what the Bible says. When you look at what God says about the Bible... It's that you are saved in relationship with him and to one another, the church of God. We see this through the New Testament when God speaks about church and he wants to use different words to try and evoke uh, his intention. He says he'll use things for uh, words like for the church would be the house of God, this idea of a house, that we are all bricks in this house. Or uh, we are the body, we are one part, uh, many parts in one body, together, unity. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's this idea that God speaks of the church as a togetherness, a unity when he speaks of who we are as a people. Very rarely does it speak of individuals, but rather a people of God. The church is one. Unity is God's family together. And I want to show you just one cool thing that flows out of this uh, when we think about unity in the church and the power that it has. If I had more time, I'd, I'd dive into this with you, but go and read this later on. Ephesians 3, to so the next chapter on, that Paul talks about in, uh, in this letter to the Gentiles. Ephesians 3, 1-10. to Paul says basically here in this passage that there, because of the unity of the church, it actually shows God's wisdom and His glory to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Now these, these rulers and authorities that Paul talks about here, when he uses this language, he's speaking about... Um, those powers align with the devil. We live in a spiritual world, that there are powers and authorities that that are against God. And Paul speaks about them here. And he says that you and I gathering and the church gathering from different backgrounds, from different uh, races, from different cultures, is a visible display of God's wisdom to the principalities, to Satan and his rulers, of God's wisdom and his power. The church, I've heard a friend of mine say, the church being one is a massive up yours to Satan and saying, look what I can do in the gospel. The church united, because of Jesus' death, reminds Satan that he's been defeated. Satan wants to divide and wants no one to follow Christ. And the the church is a visible expression of the gospel uniting people from all different backgrounds under one head, Christ Christ. And the church is a constant reminder mind to the powers and principalities that Jesus has the victory and he cannot be stopped. And he has bought himself a people and he will win. That's the power of the church united. That we are showing to the, the principalities and the rules of the cosmic realm how good is God. That's what happens when we gather. That's the power of the church. This is God and his people united. This is how important the church is to God. I love how Josh Harris puts it. He writes this in his, in his book on church: the heavenly beings look down at the church and they see an amazing family. The power of the gospel is only cha- is, is sorry the, the power of the gospel is only changing individuals, but also creating a whole new kind of humanity. In the midst of a strife-torn world, a world divided by gender, race, class, and political ideology, the church is a city uh, is a city set on a hill where people who once were enemies with God and with each other have become God's children and members of a family, the church. So My hope is, as we start to come to understand God's idea and definition of the church, that we would have the same heart for it as God does, the same value on it as God does. But that's God and how he's defined the church. I want to show you now, this the next step on, about how God feels about the church. You can hear that and go, cool, God's done that, but I want to show you how he feels about the church. And I've just mentioned to you a bunch of words that God uses to describe the church, you know, body, building, house, people, nation. But there's one word that I didn't mention that I think evokes God's feeling towards the church. In the past few years, as a pastor, I've had the, uh, the pleasure of being involved in many weddings and facilitating weddings. And when you facilitate a wedding, you really get the best view of what's going on in the day. And uh, so I get to stand at the front and see everything that's going on. And I always find it interesting watching how the groom waits at the front for the, you know, 45 minutes or so for the bride to arrive. And they pace around palms, trying to act cool, but they're not. They're freaking out, full of nerves, just waiting for their beautiful bride to, to arrive. The bride arrives normally. And uh, normally how I do it, I go outside and meet the bride who's outside in the car. And she jumps out of the car, and she's like a deer in headlights often, like, what is happening? Just been up since 5.30 a.m., doing the makeup and the hair, and is so tired, and thinking, I'm so, what's going on? Then I go inside and tell the groom that, that the bride is here, and then he freaks out even more and starts sweating and profusely. And, um, and then he's sort of, his groom's been trying to hold him up to stand at the front and get ready for this to happen. Doors fly open, bridesmaids come in, and the tension sort of builds as he's waiting to see his beautiful bride. And everyone in the church looks towards the groom to see his response and see how he's emotionally feeling about the day and how he's feeling about seeing about to see his bride. And then, uh, then normally the bride, enters and uh, you see the groom in tears and he's totally awestruck and speechless at his bride's beauty that he's about to get this woman to make, him, make her his wife. And there's, the, there's this, this love that exudes from this day. And there's one wedding for me that stands out in my mind where I saw this perfectly. And there's a photo that captured this so well that I want to show you. And it's from my friend John O'Kerr. Have a look at this when he saw Flick. I love this photo of him seeing how much he loves Flick and he's about to see her and become husband and wife. And I'm just there, cool in the background, playing it cool. You know, not sure. Just. But, but I love this photo. I think it really captures this moment so beautifully as he sees his bride on the day. And he's overcome with emotion. Do you know the other word that God uses to describe the church is his bride. He calls it his bride. And I think that picture there just shows how he feels about his church. His bride, he calls it. And then he wants to communicate his depth of his love and his commitment just like a groom on his wedding day. Let me show you this passage that I think from Ephesians 5, it gets spoken on a lot at most weddings about husbands and wives. And most people look at this and just sort of pull out what it means for a husband and a wife. But I think if you look at this passage, it's primarily about Jesus and his love for the church. Let me show you this, sentence 25, it says this, Husbands, love your wives, how? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How much does Jesus love the church? Well, he gave his whole life. He gave his whole life. And here Jesus speaks of the church being his bride. He offered himself in her place to wash her clean from sin. And it's 26. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. This is Jesus' love for his church, and he gave his whole life for her to make her his own. That's how much he loves it. And his love is not fickle or flighty. He doesn't waver or his love doesn't depend on, on how he's feeling towards his church. Or towards us? Now he loved so much that he gave himself up for her, for us. And his love is tender. His love is patient. He is committed. And he nourishes, cherishes, sustains, and protects his church. And it's unchanging. Because it's not about us. It's about him and his faithfulness. And now he's continually at work in his church to cleanse us and prepare us for eternity. He's working in us. The cool thing is his love for the church is so deep. And his identification with us so real that he even views us as his own body. Verse 30, sentence 30. He views us as his own body. That's how much he loves the church. You and I. The church is the, is, is the visible body of Christ in the world. And, we are, and it is so central to God's plans for every generation. He calls us his body. That's the union, the oneness that we have with Jesus and the church. Think about, you know, just think about us for a second of how often and how often I fall and sin and fall short of the glory of God day in, day out. And surely you must think, you know, surely Jesus must get sick of that. He must get sick if he looks down on the church and the mess that goes on and the brokenness and the failures that go on. He must be thinking, come on, do better. Do better, fix yourself up. But he doesn't. He wants to remind us again and again of his love. He wants to nourish us with the word and remind us of his great love for us. He has cleansed us by his death on the cross. He says, come to me and I'll work in you for eternity. I'll prepare you for when you meet me on the final day. And then at the end of the, book of, the, at the end of the Bible and Revelation, we have this beautiful picture and it describes this final wedding of, the, of us to Jesus, the church to Jesus' wedding day. Let me read it for you. Revelation nineteen six to eight. This is describing his final, final wedding feast. It says this. Then I heard what I seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, "Hallelujah!" For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is the day where it's all heading. This final day where we see Jesus face to face and he says, you are mine forever. A wedding like no other. And the church from all generations, from all nations will be there, presented to Christ. This is the great day described as the final wedding feast. You know, one of the reasons why we were given marriage from God was actually to illustrate his love for us. I love this idea that God invented romance and the pursuit of the promise of undying love between a man and a woman so that throughout our lives we would just catch a faint glimmer of the intense love Jesus has for those he saves. I wonder if you've thought that before. Think about how much you love your spouse or boyfriend or whatever it is, right? That's just a faint taste, and God's given us that gift to help us to understand the love he has for his church. That's why he gave us marriage. That's Jesus' passion for his church. And I think one of the strongest arguments of why we should love the church is because God does. Because God does. The strongest reason we should be committed to his church is because Jesus is. You can't love Jesus but hate his church. Because in his body, His bride. It'd be like saying to me, Hey, Gav, I think you're a great guy. I really dig you. I think you you know who you are is fantastic, but hey, your wife, I want nothing to do with her. She's horrible. I don't, don't bring her near me ever again. I think she's 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 not a nice person at all. Now, if you didn't say that to me, I'll probably knock you out first. But we couldn't be friends. We couldn't be friends. It's the same with Jesus and his church. That's how close the connection is with the bride of Christ and Jesus. It's that unity. And hopefully you're getting a picture of how much Jesus loves the church and how important the church is to him and how much he cherishes it. And here's what I want you to hear. If you love Jesus, then surely you must love what he loves and be committed to what he is. Not just tolerate it or be indifferent to it or normally involved in it, but be in love with it and committed to God's plan through his church, through us, through us. So we see what the church is. God's love for it. But I want to finish with why it's important, what His purposes are for it. I want to show you three ways you lose out if you aren't plugged in and committed to the church. And I think you bring harm to yourself, you bring harm to your community, church community, and you bring harm to the world. Harm to yourself, harm the church community, and harm to the world. Firstly, harm to yourself. You know, the church is actually God's design, it's His plan, His purpose to help you grow. It's like a good father giving a gift to his children to help them to grow. And that's what the church is. It's often called the greenhouse for growth. The church is God's greenhouse for growth. And when we're involved in the church, we put ourselves in the best possible context to allow God to work in us. It's the place where we grow spiritually and flourish spiritually. Again, Josh Harris in his book on church writes this, It's in the church context where you best learn to love God and others, where we are strengthened and transformed by the truth of the word where we are taught to pray, worship, serve, where we can be the most certain what we are investing in our time and our abilities for eternity. We can grow in our roles as friends and sons and daughters and husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. The church is Earth's single best place, God's specially designed place, to start over, to grow and to change for the glory of God. That's God's purpose. That's God's plan for the church. That's a gift He's given us. And so we heard, we, we, we're affected. We don't grow as much or grow when we're not invested in the church and committed. Secondly, when we don't commit to the church, we affect others, namely the church community. As we've been seeing, a follower of Jesus is not just you and God, it's us together. We are saved into the family of God. When God calls us, calls his people, he actually calls them to love him and to love others. You know, Jesus, someone says to Jesus, oh, some of the commandments... And Jesus says, yeah, uh, it's love God and love others. In the the New Testament, almost 50 times God calls people to love one another in different ways. Uh, Like, you know, carry one another's burdens, or forgive one another, or encourage one another, or confess sins to one another, and so on. 50 different ways of saying that, to one anothering. And one anothering is a key part of following Jesus. And it's hard to one another if you aren't here, isn't it? It's hard to one another if you're not here. And Jess will speak more about this next week. But I want to say, I I so feel loved, I so feel encouraged when people just turn up here on a Sunday. I know how busy we are. I know how crazy life is. How many things are going at us for our time and our energy. And I feel loved when we just turn up. I love standing next to you and singing praise to Jesus. I love that. I love seeing you and saying, hey, I love that you are here and you've prioritized meeting with God and meeting with me to encourage me. Thank you for being here. I think it's a truly taste of what heaven's going to be like in Revelation 7. But when you aren't here, we miss you. We miss you. And it affects us. And we can't love you and you can't love us. We miss out. We're the church of God together and God dwells here when we gather When we gather his people, God is here in our midst. And I love what Donald Whitney says on this, another ride on the church. He says, God will manifest his presence in congregational worship in ways you can never know, even in the most glorious secret worship. That's because you are not only the temple of God as an individual, but the Bible says, and far more often, that Christians collectively are God's temple. And God manifests his presence in different ways to individuals when they are gathered uh, when they are gathered, then he does. When they are apart, this is why they, this is why gathering to worship with other believers is so irreplaceable. It can't be substituted with a personal devotion or a lovely Bible study or a meditative nature hike or listening to a sermon online. But God is here in our midst. Each morning, each afternoon, He is here. Where is temple? We are not a social club. We are not just a place to hang out with friends. We are the temple of God. That is who we are in the world. And we are made for more than private devotions. We're made to worship Jesus together. We are the church. The great reformer Martin Luther says, At home, in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. The church is gathered. This is what happens. Finally, when we don't commit to the church, the world is cheated. One of, the, one of the greatest purposes for the church is also for us to be a witness to the watching world. Let me show you this last verse from John 13, Jesus speaking, 13, 34, and 35. He says this, A new commandment I give you, that you should love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, or by this love, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When the church loves, when we truly love like Jesus uh, loves, what happens? The world sees The world sees and can experience God's love. When someone comes into our midst who doesn't know Jesus, which we have regularly, they can see and experience an unconditional love, which is the love of Christ. And again, we'll look at this in a couple of weeks, but I want to say I think the church community is one of our best missional tools we have. It's a way of showing God's love to a world that longs to know this love. Church as a family is a powerful gospel testament. It is unconditional love. It is, it is accepted no matter who you are or what you've done. And that is the gospel of Christ. And people can come in and tangibly experience this, God's love, as we do this as a people. The church is the vehicle in which Jesus chooses to take his message of his death and resurrection to the whole world. and The church is front and center of these plans. That's why it's often said the local church is the hope of the world. When we aren't involved in that, we cheat cheat the world out of that. God has not only just loved us and saved us, but he's invited into us being part of his master plan to redeem the whole world to himself. That's the mission of the church. So when we don't commit to the church, we cheat ourselves, the church community, and the world. The famous British great preacher Charles Spurgeon, one of the best preachers of all time, says that the church, he calls the church the dearest place on earth the dearest place on earth. In a culture where commitment is low, I want to say don't believe the lie that you're much happier the less you sacrifice or give your time to the church. Rather, I want to encourage you, dear people, who understand what the church is, how much he loves, Jesus loves it, then get on board with with his vision and his passion and then experience the blessing that is there, of God's blessing that is there. The church is central to God's purpose in the world, so it surely must be central to ours. Let's not take lightly what God has taken seriously and let's experience the church being the dearest place on earth. Let's be a people. It's not about church. Let me pray for us. Father, you have bought yourself with the blood of Christ, a people, your people. You have made yourself a family through the blood of Christ. We are the church. And Lord, we want to say, help us to have your vision of what your plans are for this church and how you define it. Lord, help us to fall more in love with the church. Lord, it is often messy. It is hard to love people. It is hard to to, to let people into our lives, to open up, to be vulnerable. And it's hard to continually show love to people that we often just run out of energy and steam. Lord, we experience this week in, week out. We can often just feel like we're dragging our feet to church each Sunday. But Lord, give us a renewed vision, a renewed passion for what you say the church is. And the plans that it has, both for the powers and principalities, but also to, for us and for our community and for our world. Lord, give us a new heart for the church. Help us to see you, Jesus, that you brought the church with your blood, that you love it that much. So help us to step back and have your heart for the church. Lord, as we go forward in the next few weeks, just keep working in our hearts thank you that we are saved by your your blood and your love, it's not what we do, and we're the bride of Christ, but help us to live out those blessings, to experience you as we gather, To make being here a priority. Thank you so much for the church. Give us a new heart for what we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.